So I began two weeks ago by saying that my aim in teaching through a series, a topical series on the gifts of the Spirit is not just to help us correct where we might have been thinking wrongly, although of course that's very important, and we're always wanting to try to find a a biblically-centric, a Christ-centered expression of all truth, right, that we pursue. So it's it's not just that we would have our, our thinking and our understanding corrected, but that we would also be so convinced of their necessity and the presence of them biblically. You see what I'm saying? I don't want us just to say like, okay, that's helpful. I've thought it was this way, but it's actually this way. But it's in so doing that we would find our our own faith stirred for the manifestations or the word that that, that Paul uses is the charisma or the charismata, which are the expressions of grace within the church and through believers, which is the supernatural and sovereign move of God by his spirit to accomplish something. That we together would not just recognize that they are true biblically, but that we would be so invigorated to pursue them together. Because just as Janet was obedient to bring that word, what happens, what happened in your heart? Think for a moment. As Janet was talking about recapturing the beauty and, and, the, and the awesomeness of the word hallelujah, did you find in your heart or in your spirit that it was becoming alive when she was saying that? This is the benefit of why the Spirit of God moves among his church. And so as I said a couple of weeks ago, there's two things that take place. The first is that the manifestations of the Spirit's power through the charismata, through the expressions of grace of the Spirit of God, within the church, they point to the existence, they point to the power, and of course to the tangible presence of God to the unbelieving heart. And I've been talking about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he says, when I speak in tongues or if you prophesy and an unbeliever comes in, that their heart is open, that they fall on their face before God and they say that God is among you. That is what happens when the activity of the Spirit is taking place. But not just for the unbeliever, it's the same thing that happens for us. Just as when Janet spoke and our hearts were enlivened to the truth and God by his spirit was stirring something of faith in our own hearts, the benefit is not just for an unbeliever, but it's for a believer as well. And in so doing, our faith is invigorated and our hope for the promise of our eternal inheritance is made certain in our hearts and minds. Is it not? This is why we desire these things. This is why we pursue these things. And just to remind you again of what I have been saying is because the church is positioned right now in this moment to be an answer to the cry for transcendency that the world so desires. To, that it's living for something greater than itself in every endeavor that it takes up. And here is the church And she has literally become the vehicle for the transcendent presence of the kingdom of God by the power of his spirit and all of his authority here on earth through her. Amen? I just said a lot in like one big run run on sentence. But all of that is true. Let your heart take a hold of that this morning. And I think that the difficulty is that even in me saying that, and acknowledging that 
We're on a spectrum of experience and understanding. Some of the hyper-charismatic, some of the cessation or, the, or the, the ceasing of the manifestations of the Spirit and everywhere in between, even in me saying that, it, it feels a bit mystical and somewhat abnormal to our normal ter- ter- terrestrial existence as human beings, isn't it? It's like just talking about it kind of goes, ah, what is, I don't know, if, am I really open? Am I really desirous? It's because on the one hand, it is completely abnormal to the human natural heart. But to the believer, to the believer, it's the common and it's the ordinary church. That the Spirit of God who dwells within you, who gives life to your mortal bodies, the same Spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead and dwells us, empowers us, moves through us, and as Paul says, for the common good. And what is the common good? That we are built up together, that the church comes along in maturity, that the church is reminded of her calling, of the certainty of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen? And so as I said two, two weeks ago, or yeah, two weeks ago, let's, let's not compartmentalize the work of the Spirit. We believe that the Spirit does all of these things in our life, but yet when it comes to the gifts or the expressions of grace through the Spirit of God, we kind of go like this sometimes. We want to pump the brakes. I have faith that God, as he stirs these things in us, on our rich and deep foundation that he's been building into us these last 10, 12, 15 years, has given us what we need in terms of understanding to see these gifts expressed rightly. I believe that, church. And I'm not saying we're the only ones. What I'm saying is is that we we just need more of this in in our existence. So I'm praying and I'm believing for that. So today what I want to do is we're teaching through 1 Corinthians or, or no, that's not right actually. Scratch that. Can we edit that out of the recording? We're using 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as a, as a bit of a guide working through the spiritual gifts. But I, listen, I have to say this, guys, as I've been studying more and more, I, I want to actually kind of come with a few provisos this morning, some, some, some add-ons, if you will, some addendums qualifiers, clarifications to our understanding of the gifts as they are presented to the church. And the first one is this, and I really felt like the Lord was cautioning me in my own heart. Even as I've set out and as I've been articulating thus far, just, this, just the idea that we would use 1 Corinthians 12 as the main scriptural trajectory, which is not wrong, but let me just say this. I want to begin by cautioning us that we would not see 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, or even Peter's 1 Peter chapter 4. Those are some of the, the common texts where we see the charismata articulated. That we would not look at those as somehow representative of a complete and exhaustive list of the gifts that the Holy Spirit provides. Okay, when I say that, What I'm not saying is that anything goes. Okay, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this, that perhaps Paul's intent and Peter's intent was not to give us an exhaustive list of these are the gifts of the Spirit. Why? 
Because I think that when we have that mentality, the tendency can be to limit or diminish the work of the Spirit in the church. And so I'm just I'm submitting that to you, and I felt cautioned this week in my own heart, and so I feel like I need to bring that to the church. I don't know about you, but I was raised to see 1 Corinthians 12 as these are the gifts of the Spirit. This is what it is. And the more I study and the more I consider what the Bible, what the Holy Spirit reveals through the Scriptures, is that I don't know that that is exactly true. And so I just want to be careful that we don't diminish the work or, or limit the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think by looking at those texts that I reference, we can actually see that that point might be made clear. Because when we think logically, when we look at 1 Corinthians 4, when we look at Romans, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 4, we see these different lists. And some of the lists have uh, overlap. Some omit certain gifts from other lists written by the same author. And some just don't even state others that perhaps we would think, well, what about intercession? Or, or what about deliverance? Gifts that we see exemplified within Scripture, but yet not specifically stated by Paul in his, in his text. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. In fact, there are many writers who suggest that very same thing, and such as deliverance. We see deliverance all through Jesus' ministry, and we understand that Jesus was empowered by the same Spirit. Remember, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan, what happened when he came up out of the water? The Spirit of God descended upon him, and he was driven into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted, and having overcome the temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit, he immediately moves into his earthly ministry. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit of God, church, now, it doesn't negate what Rick said last week, which was very important, that, that, of course, in his humanity, he is both fully God and fully man, but he laid aside a portion of his deity to be like us and for the sake of the gospel message. And so, just as he ministered by the Spirit, so do we, and I'm way off track now at this point. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter says this, as each, listen, as each has received a gift or a charisma, employ it for one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, he says. As stewards of God's varied grace. The word here for varied means having many facets of distinction or having a rich diversity. So in other words, there is a rich diversity of the grace of God in the spiritual gifts. We don't necessarily know all that they are. And so I believe in me saying this to begin, what's important is that apart from in these texts from substantiating the presence of the gifts given to the church by the Spirit is to communicate their diversity and the unique function of each gift from one person to another. So in other words, you might be functioning under the grace of prophecy for a morning. And Ernie, you might function under the grace of prophecy. And it will look different because you're each different. 
And, the, and the, what's important is that God has given to us diversity for the sake of the common good, not that we would all have the same thing and function in the same way. And we know this too because in both 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses the analogy of the body directly preceding or following his discussion of the spiritual gifts. Like members of each body having a unique part and function, Paul talks about, within the body, so do the variety of gifts when present and used for the common good make not for a fragmented church, but a more unified and a healthy church. Diversity in gifts does not create division or fragmentation. It creates unity in the church. One of the writers that I read this week said it this way. He says that it runs counter to the world's way of thinking to say that we will enjoy greater unity when we join closer together with those who are different from us. Think about that again. It runs counter to the world's way of thinking to say that we'll enjoy greater unity when we join closer together with those who are different from us. But that's precisely the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 12, demonstrating, listen, the glory of God's wisdom. Demonstrating the glory of God's wisdom and not allowing anyone to have all the necessary gifts for the church, but in requiring us to depend upon each other for the proper function of the church. This is why there are a variety of gifts of grace given to each, that they would function in them for the common good, that we would rely on each other, that we would be built up one by another. So that is the first, just to caution us that we not perhaps look at them as an exhaustive and complete list. The second thing I just felt like I wanted to give this morning, as we endeavor to pursue them more and more, I believe that it is both healthy and helpful to see the gifts which the Spirit gives as a foreshadowing of their perfect eternal reality. Why does God give gifts to the church? I believe in part to point us to what will be. Believing and non-believing alike. It might perhaps be a secondary reason for giving us the gifts, but yet a still significant purpose in their presence within the church, again, for both the believer and the unbeliever. Because to the Ephesians, Paul says this. He would say that when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and when we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee, and that word there for guarantee is what? It's down payment, as some translations say. Or what is a down payment? It is a partial payment of a future fulfillment. The gifts of the Spirit in the church, brothers and sisters, in part is to function as a reminder of their eternal perfect reality. Now, when I say this, it isn't to say that the Spirit's work is diminished in them or that it's somehow less powerful. It's that the expression is, in a sense, incomplete in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Are you familiar with that expression? The now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here, it has come, and it will fully be revealed one day on that day when Christ returns. That is the now 
and the not yet. And so it's logical for us, and Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God is given to us now as a partial payment, as a partial uh, exemplification. Is that a word? Yeah, it is. I just made it up. Of what will be in the future. So the healing that we see now partially points to the complete healing that we will one day experience. The partial wisdom and insight and knowledge that we receive now by the Spirit of God points to the wisdom, the greater wisdom that will one day be ours. The work of the Spirit now that is partial points to his complete work that he'll one day do in us. You see what I'm saying? So this is another reason why the gifts of the Spirit are given to the church. This is another reason why we need them activated within our midst. And then lastly, I just want to say this. And all of this is before I say what I was going to say this morning. First Peter 4.10, Peter says in that same uh, text I read a moment ago, that just as each has received a gift, he says, use it. As each has received a gift, use it. And I've said this before, church, the imperatives within Scripture must be understood as imperatives. You know what I mean by that? Remember, the go back into grammar, remember the difference between a declarative statement and an imperative statement, right? Imperative means what? It must be done. It must be followed. So to take one step further then would be to say this, that to not use the gifts that are given to us not only hurts the body, through our withholding of it. And I believe Rick spoke on this last week, or we've said it before, but when the, when the body is not fully present, those that are present miss out on those who are absent. To not use the gift as we're commanded, to not step out in faith and obedience, is potentially, or is in itself, disobedience and therefore a sin. Disobedience to the command of God. And listen, so what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that in our learning and in our growing that we, we miss our opportunities and therefore that's a sin. I'm not putting that on any of us. I'm saying that when we are under the unction, that we were, when we're under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God to not be obedient is wrong on our part. It's wrong. And that's what Peter's saying. As each has been given a gift, use it. I think it's really important, church. And it isn't to coerce us or, you know, to like twist our arm into like getting out there and prophesying. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is let it be a reminder to encourage us to step out in faith. Is that okay? Because that's all I'm trying to do is to encourage us to step out in faith to the Lord. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Open your Bibles, please. I want to read two portions of 1 Corinthians 12. We'll probably continue to read segments of this over and over as we work our way through the gifts as Paul expresses here in chapter 12 to the 1 Corinthians. He says this, 
beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. And I think I just stopped there. Now go forward to chapter 13 and look at what he says in verse 1. He picks up this idea or this truth of the gift of faith to the church. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, interesting that he's repeating the same gifts that we just read in chapter 12. If I have each of those, which I do in the sense of that the Spirit gives them to each person, if I have each of those, and he says, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so twice here, we have this idea of faith being a grace gift of God to his church. And I think what behooves us then is to identify what sort of faith is this charisma of faith that Paul is talking about. And so I want to speak on that this morning, just in the next 10 to 15 minutes, on the gift of faith to the church. Because I believe that it is important gift, church. And I'm going to tell you why here in a moment. And I think it's one because it might not be quite as sexy as some of the others. That it's one that we easily go past. I mean, aren't there, it's like we want to get to tongues because it's weird, and we want to get to prophecy because it gets us excited. But faith, we go, ah, I've got faith. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm being exaggerative, but am I not like somewhat true? I mean, I've thought that way at times. We hyper-focus, we hyper-focus, and we make, and this is another reason why it's important for us to consider the many varieties of the grace gifts is that when we hyper-focus, I think we have the tendency to make some greater than they actually are. When that's not what Paul was doing, apart from 1 Corinthians 12, 28, when he lists them in order, no other text is he giving these are greater, these are greater, these are greater. So, two questions that I want to answer. What is this grace gift of faith, and how is it experienced? What is this grace gift of faith, and how is it experienced? So as a helpful reminder, just as we begin, I want to continue to present this to you. We're defining spiritual gifts as follows. A spiritual gift, a charisma. So charismata is the plural. Charisma is the singular, in case you're wondering. So a charisma is when the Holy Spirit manifests his presence and imparts his power into and through individual believers to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity so that they may be faithfully and effectively fulfill certain ministry tasks for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, it's up there. Let's read it again. This is super, super helpful, church. A spiritual gift is when the Holy Spirit manifests his presence and imparts his power 
into and through individual believers to enable them to exceed the limitations of their finite humanity so that they may faithfully and effectively fulfill certain ministry tasks for the building up of the body of Christ. It is an excellent and very well-stated full breadth of the grace gift for the church. I did not write it. I wish I did. So what is this gift of faith that God gives? Straight away, we're faced with the question, what type of faith is Paul referring to? And I think this is the bulk of what I want to say today. What is the type of faith when Paul says that to some he gives, the Spirit gives faith? Let's consider, to answer this, what are the different expressions of faith in the life of the believer? How do we see faith expressed in our life? And I think we can pull three primary ways that faith is exemplified in the life of a Christ follower. They're this. We have faith that saves, faith that perseveres, and seemingly what Paul is saying is faith that is particular or faith for something specific. And I think this is really helpful because the faith that saves, when we think of faith that saves, that's, we know that one very easily. In fact, that's probably where we primarily default to. And that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, that he says that it's for grace that you have been saved by faith. Faith that saves is the faith that is imputed into the believer to believe upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. Even that faith comes by the Spirit of God. And I've never forgotten, we sat, we had this brilliant, brilliant theologian come into Capital City Church one Sunday, and he taught from the original Greek text on the New, of the New Testament, and he reminded us of Paul's statement in Galatians where he says, the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God. And he reminded us that actually the, 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 um, the um, what is it? I'm going to say interpretation. What is the word? I've lost it. Thank you. The translation is that the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Even the faith to believe is faith that is given by God for us. But that's not what Paul's talking about. So that's the faith that saves. And then we have the faith that, the faith that perseveres. And we know this. And this, I believe, is what the first couple dozen verses of Hebrews chapter 11 are talking about. By faith, Abraham. It's by faith, Moses. It's the, men, it's the men and women, one after another, who continued in hope, in perseverance, in steadfastness towards that which God called them to. That is the faith that perseveres. It's the faith that we all have. And I believe that's actually what Paul is talking about. I believe in Romans, if we were to look at Romans, when he talks about the gifts of grace, he talks about the measure of faith that each has been given. When you dig into it, it's, a, it's, it's basically he's trying to communicate a standard that all have. We each have been given the same measure of faith to believe in Jesus and to continue on in the faith. I don't have a greater measure than you, and you don't have a greater measure than I. We each have been given the measure of faith by the Spirit of God. So that's the faith that perseveres. So we know those two, and I think sometimes we read 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and we say, we probably process it as one of those two. I'll, again, I'll say, I know that I have at times. And I don't think, well, I know, that's not what Paul's talking about. 
So there seems to now be a third expression of faith in the life of a believer, and that is what Paul's talking about. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be an impartation of faith that is a higher measure of the ordinary grace of faith in the life of a believer. An impartation of faith given by the Spirit to bring about a positive effect for the common good of others. It exceeds that which you and I are experiencing right this moment as we live for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a faith for a particular situation or a special circumstance. One author I read this week, he said this, it's a faith that produces not only miracles, but martyrs. And I thought immediately about the last portion of Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at that together. Now with this idea that the Holy Spirit gives to his people at times under his sovereign choice an an extra impartation of faith to accomplish something that is supernatural. Hebrews chapter 11. I never read it like this before. I will say this to you. Beginning in verse 29, he says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Verse 32, and it's like he just runs out of time to say them all specifically. And what more shall I say? And immediately in my mind and heart has conjured this picture of all of the saints for the centuries that would follow. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Could this be? the gift of faith that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians? I think it is. Who accomplishes these things in their own natural ability? None. None. Not even on my best day would I come remotely close. An impartation of grace to his church to accomplish extra ordinary things. Do you believe in it? Let me ask you this. Have you ever experienced this in your life before? Think for just a moment. I have. Very simply, in prayer. There are moments in prayer 
where I have faith like I have never had before for something. And oftentimes it's when I'm praying for someone, coming to the Lord on behalf of someone or something specifically. I've experienced it in my life before. I experienced it just last week. And listen, without getting weird and creepy on you, I have this really interesting sensation in my hands that I have learned accompanies this additional measure of grace that God gives. It's, and it's been that way since I remember being filled with the Spirit of God back as a teenager coming to faith. Think about those times in your life, church, when God was on you in a way that you do not normally experience. That's the work of the Spirit. See, again, let's, let's normalize these things. This isn't weird. It's mystical, yes, because it's sovereign and divine and otherworldly, but are we not otherworldly? I am. You are if you've, been, if you've come to faith. Again, the Spirit of God indwells you. Amen? Acts 6.5 tells us that Stephen, this is an interesting description. Do you remember? There's, there's two words used to describe Stephen. Do you remember? Isn't it the worst when someone's like, have you ever had someone like, be like let's finish this, text, this scripture together, and you're like, oh man, I don't know what it is. <laughs> if I had time, I'd tell you this funny story. I'll tell it to you. So this was years ago, back when we were in Del Paso Heights. There was a men's group, and in the group, Rick, who was leading the group at the time, was using 2 Timothy 3.16, the all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable text, okay? He didn't tell us we were going to recite it. It just week after week, it was being used. On one Sunday, he was like, let's have all the guys stand up and recite. Was anybody there? Was it just me? I think I might have been... Kayan was there. Listen, I had no clue what it was. I was like, I mean, and there was, you know, we're standing with all these people, and I'm just kind of mouthing. And you know what, though? I wasn't the only one, and Rick's up there with the mic, and I think he quickly realized it. And he, so he started saying it, and we're all, <laughs> so this isn't one of those moments, but Acts 6-5 says that Steve, it's like popcorn, popcorn Ted. Acts 6.5 tells us that Stephen was a man who was filled with the Spirit and of faith. Interesting description. I mean, would that not be said about each one of us, that we are filled with the Spirit and of faith? It's all, that he was full of faith is what Luke tells us in Acts. So it's almost like Stephen, who was what? The, the first Christian martyr, was a man who functioned perhaps... And I'm not going to write scripture here, but I'm just giving us some perhaps, because like Rick last week, what we don't have is we don't have a very clear explanation of what this, this grace gift of faith is in the church. And so we're left to deduce and to build based off of what scripture tells us. Perhaps that's what Stephen functioned in in his life primarily, a gift of faith. And of course, we know that that faith was there to profess the gospel and to be stoned. What about in Jesus' ministry? In Jesus' ministry, we have Matthew chapter 21. Let's look at that together. Interesting, too, it's like Paul's picking up on what Jesus said to his disciples. 
Perhaps one of the early apostles conveyed to Paul the words of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 21, verse 21, Jesus says this, And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now look at Matthew chapter 14, go back seven chapters. This is just Jesus' ministry. Are these perhaps examples of the gift of faith for something extraordinary? Matthew 14, verses 28. And Peter said to him, and this is when Jesus calls Peter to walk out on the water. That was pretty extraordinary, right? And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? Is he talking about saving faith? No, I don't believe he is. There's something. So in these instances, it's actually an omission of faith that perhaps was being given in that moment. I don't know. And then in Matthew 17, Let's look at Matthew 17. These are just a couple of examples that are perhaps this expression. Matthew 17, verse 19, Jesus says this, and then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Talking about a demon. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, and here it is again, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. What about other New Testament outside of the ministry of Jesus? In Acts 3.16, Rick mentioned this text last week. Peter and John on the way past the gate beautiful and the lame beggar who sat there for years and years and years and years and it said that, and Peter fixed his gaze upon the man, right? Remember that? Rick talked about it last week. But what does it say? It says that it was the faith in Jesus' name that made the man well. In Acts chapter 14, now it's Paul and Barnabas. And it says that Paul, same thing, fixed his gaze at the individual and said that he had faith to be made well. I I don't know. I'm perhaps, perhaps. See, the difficulty, again, is that we, we don't know explicitly whether this is what Paul is referring to, but yet we can look at these accounts and we can agree that there seems to be an impartation of something particular, a greater amount of faith for the thing that would be done, right? Or a lack thereof in some of these instances. Not saving faith, not persevering faith, but particular faith. So I think, brothers and sisters, the importance for us in believing this is that we would understand that God grants additional faith to his people at times to accomplish extraordinary things. Very simple. But let's not diminish. And the reason that that this is important is because I believe that this is a grace gift that many, many people have experienced in their life. And it's one, unlike perhaps prophecy or even tongues, that most of us have experienced at one point to another. So let's begin to believe that this would be cultivated 
as we gather, or that the Lord Jesus would move through you and upon you in this way by his spirit for the sake of the gospel, for the common good, not just of the church sometimes, but for those outside of the church as well, right? May we be open to it, a willingness of heart, and the certainty and the promises of God. And so how do we pursue this? Very simply, as I was thinking about how do we pursue this, and I want to land here, this is a simple not necessarily a profound teaching this morning, but again, we're looking to, to normalize, to activate, to stir these things within our hearts, to begin to believe and so pursue. So this is a simple thing in the sense of it's faith and it's given by God. But how do we, how do we pursue it together? How is it expressed when we come together? The first is, as I was thinking about it, is this. I believe the part that we play is that we grow in the understanding and the knowledge of who God is and what his ways are. In other words, it's time spent meditating upon scripture, understanding what is true, believing in the promises of God because like Stephen, who in that moment, filled with the spirit of God and full of faith, professes and proclaims and declares what the true gospel message is. Don't you believe that it wasn't just a complete unction? Something is a part that we play in that. And it's, it's, it's like what Rick talked about last week where we can't come on a Sunday morning having done who knows what Saturday, all day Saturday and Saturday night, and then you get up sun, Sunday morning and you're groggy and you hit snooze 10 times and you walk into this building maybe just being awake for an hour and and then we expect that the Lord would just move? Well, God can do anything, right? But wouldn't you agree that there's preparation that takes place or when given place in our life probably helps in our sensitivity to the Spirit of God? Can we agree on that? That's what I'm saying here. I'm sure that Stephen, I'm sure that Stephen, full of faith in the Spirit of God, had been with his brothers was, was being sharpened by truth, was, had, had in his mind the promises of God and the understanding of the, of the history and the narrative of redemption and God's purpose through Jesus Christ. And then, as needed, the Lord gives him faith and the Lord causes him to achieve and accomplish something that was Supernatural. So uh, what I'm saying is, is how do we experience it? Let's do the work, church. Let's do the work. Let's form the habits of holiness in our life. Let's cultivate the ground of righteousness in our hearts. And we know, as we've talked so much about, the liturgies of culture are constant. Unless we build up liturgies of holiness, patterns of holiness in our life, there will be no room left, right? Take time in solitude. It's necessary. Learn how to quiet your mind. Turn off your phone. Turn off the television. Open the word of God to not just read it, but to receive from it. Study the word of God. There's a difference between devotion and study. And they both should be active in our lives. Pray. 
Seek to hear from the Lord. These are simple things that accomplish much in the life of the believer. So that when God moves upon you or through you, whether it's in worship or whether it's in a midweek hub or whether it's in your place of work, that you are ready to receive that extra measure of faith for what God would call you to. Amen? I hope that's helpful. I just want to continue, as I've been saying and I've said already, let's just demystify these a little bit. Because when we see them as normal, it makes it much easier. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? Sovereign God, you are a God of works, Lord. You are doing something. You are about something. And Father, we are asking by your Spirit that you would stir in our hearts, that you would stir in our lives, Lord, the expectation, the habits of holiness, Lord, the patterns in our life that lends itself to you moving through us in a greater way. Father, we keep before us this idea that these gifts are given to us, the truth that it's given to us for the common good. Not that we would have and hold, Lord, but that we would be a conduit for to give away, Lord, to the glory of your name. Father, we thank you that you are present with us when we gather. We thank you that the promise is God with us, that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a guarantee of a future full payment. We thank you for that, Lord, and we cling to that. I ask today, Lord, that you would activate this grace gift in our life. I pray for those who have experienced it in the past, Lord, that you would rekindle that flame, just as Paul says to Timothy that you are to bring again that flame, to kindle the flame, the fire of the grace of God in your heart, that we would do the same. Help us, Lord. Show us this week, Father, where our patterns are wrong, where they're off, Lord Jesus. Show us this week, Lord, how this is your design and your intent. And Lord, I pray more and more and more as we come together that these would be regularly experienced, that this church would be strong and vibrant, that the Spirit of God would be present, and that believers and non-believers alike would come in to our presence, our gathering, and declare that God is in this place. Father, do this work in us, Lord Jesus. And help us, Lord, where we lack faith. Help us, Lord, where we have not believed fully. Lord, we trust that you will deal with us mercifully as you always do. Thank you that you are a loving father, a kind father. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen.